So we're going to talk about an attribute today that is, I I love it. I'm not going to make any apologies for it. It was difficult for me to get this message down to a preachable size because I like talking about this message. And I have good news. If I only spend a minute on each slide, we'll only be here for an hour and 15 minutes. So, and I'm trucking along. I know the measles are applauding. This is, this is the right group for me. I'm telling you, there'll be an intermission. We're talking about God's justice today. The justice of God. I don't know what you guys think of when you think of justice, but when I think of justice, I think of cold, harsh, blind justice. It's scary. You know, you're in a courtroom, and it's a little colder than it should be, and the judge does not look friendly. You know, I actually think of, uh, who's seen Ghostbusters 2? Remember the scene in the courtroom in Ghostbusters 2 where the judge is so angry and he's screaming at him? That's kind of what I think about when I think of justice. We're going to discover that that's not entirely accurate. It is partially accurate. And we're going to go there too. But it's not entirely accurate. And I'm going to base this whole message around one of the most interesting and controversial stories in the Bible. The story of God and his two angel buddies visiting Abraham and then going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So get ready for story time. Get in your story time posture. Drink your coffee. We're going to read it. Here we go. And the Lord appeared to him. The him is Abraham. Abraham, by the way, is in the middle of nowhere in his tent, kind of minding his own business. And these three people walk by. And he quickly discovers that one is his God. So he doesn't know that at first, we don't think. But look at how it unfolds. So the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre. And as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread, just a little bit, he says. Just let me bring you some bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So God looks at his two angel buddies and says, Do as you've said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, his wife, and said, Quick, three sias of fine flour, knead it, and make cake. Now a sia, this old measurement, was probably about seven quarts. Does that sound like a morsel to you? He's like, just stay, let me get you a Gatorade and a snack. And he's, he's like, we got to make a feast for these people. So he runs into the tent, tells Sarah, quick, make the biggest cake you've ever seen in your life. All right? And Abraham ran to his herd. You got to picture him running, right? And he grabs a calf, tender and good, and gives it to a young man who prepared it quickly. I mean, that thing is killed, slaughtered, cut into strip steak in no time flat. And then he took the curds and milk and the calf that he prepared and set it before the men who had come. And then he stood under the tree while they ate. So this is a pretty intense scene of some hospitality, is it not? It's the heat of the day, the middle of nowhere. Abraham lifts up his eyes and sees three people wandering around in the desert. And he's like, can I just get you a snack? And they say yes. And he goes all out. Now this expires? Oh, goodness. (laughs) Add it, backspace, delete. This exposes the heart of Abraham, doesn't it? 
This is why Abraham was righteous in front of God. And that kind of character is amazing. But the story continues. After the meal, after some discussion, the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, the big city that they could see from their spot in the wilderness. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. He's seeing them off. He's accompanying them a little way on their journey. And the Lord said, presumably to his angel buddies, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations on earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him, this is key, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So you have to imagine the Lord talking almost in the third person to himself, like, hmm, I wonder if I should let this guy who's standing right here know what I'm going to do since I'm going to bless him so magnificently. And I want him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Should I tell him? I mean, Abraham's right there. He's not going to not tell him. If you have the scene in your mind. So then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So you have a picture of God himself going to investigate, personally, to see if this place is really as bad as everyone else is crying out to him and saying it is. So he sends his two angel buddies down to the city, and God stays there and talks to Abraham. And Abraham says this. <clears throat> so the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Look, man. No, he probably didn't say that. He said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? This is a key phrase, too. He's talking about how God is going to pronounce judgment. We're going there today, too. We're going to talk about the concept of justice and judgment. But Abraham says, Are you really going to sweep away all the righteous people and the wicked people? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it? For the sake of 50 righteous who are in it, far be it from you to do such a thing. This is Abraham talking to God. Far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And here we come to the third thing we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about what the way of Yahweh is. What does justice and righteousness mean? We're going to talk about God's judgment. But we're also going to talk about this thing. Won't you be just, he says to God. There's an expectation that the judge of all the earth is going to act justly. (sighs) Crazy, mind blown. And this doesn't seem to compute with Abraham. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I think God wants this response. And we're going to find that later. This is kind of a test. Like, does anything smell funny about this, Abraham? And Abraham's like, this is awful. What are you doing? He passes the test. But let's talk about God's justice. He says, there's two verses that jump out at me when I read this. And I I just want to touch on them extra special before we move on. One is 1819. 
I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. This is beholding and becoming. Yahweh expects Abraham to live like Yahweh. Keep the way of the Lord. And that's justice and righteousness. We're going to talk about what that means. But then here's the other verse. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of the earth do what is just. There's an expectation that Abraham's going to act like God, and Abraham Abraham has an expectation that God is going to be just. It's interesting. We're going to touch on all that, but we're going to start with this idea of justice. Am I making good time? How are we doing? Is it good? Excellent. Then I'm going to slow way down. Not way down, no, I won't do that. Too many slides. Do you guys remember my message on God's goodness? About how in the ancient world, they didn't really have a concept of goodness, like the standard of goodness. Their gods were kind of good, kind of not good. I guess they were good. They did good. But Yahweh said, I am good. God is just in the exact same way. Just as God is good because he's the very standard of goodness, he's just because he's the very standard of justice. And guess what? When the Old Testament was written, this made Israel's God unique among their ancient neighbors. Yet again. Because the other guys hoped their gods would be just. They knew their gods gave justice. But Yahweh says, I want you to know something. I am the standard of justice. I give perfect justice. I don't mess up. You know, there's ancient stories where you have these ancient people in these other religions calling their gods to the, on the carpet, really, and saying, I think you could have handled that better. You know, and the gods are kind of like, well, well, maybe. So you just don't have that with Israel's God. He is justice. This is Tozer. <clears throat> when the destruction of Sodom was announced, Abraham interceded for the righteous within the city, reminding God that Abraham knew God would act like himself in the human emergency. This doesn't seem like something you'd do. He already had this concept that his God was just, and this didn't seem just. He's already walking in the way of the Lord without knowing it. God is just. Can't be unjust. It's kind of popular to say God isn't just. Let me just touch on that briefly. You might have heard people say, I can't believe in God. There's so much evil in the world. It's just not fair. It's kind of bunk. We can talk about that more personally if you like. I don't really go into it, but we touch on it a little bit. Let's talk about this concept of justice and righteousness. This is the way of Yahweh. God comes down and says, I've chosen you to bless your socks off, and I expect you to keep the way of Yahweh, my lifestyle. And that looks like justice and righteousness. These two terms pop up all the time together. They're like peas and carrots. Like the Forrest Gump book. I mean, it's crazy. It's justice and righteousness, righteousness and justice. Just get in your blue letter Bible app. That's right. We hit it every week. And uh, search for justice and righteousness. It's amazing what comes up. But Tozer talks about him like this. He says that in the inspired scripture, which is a fancy way of saying the Bible, justice and righteousness are scarcely to be distinguished from each other. The same word in the original becomes in English either justice or righteousness, almost, one would suspect, at the whim of the translator. These words are so closely linked that together they form one concept. 
Justice and righteousness. Righteousness and justice. And sometimes it's just shortened to justice, and sometimes it's just shortened to righteousness. But when you look at the Bible, they mean the same thing. It's astounding. We're going to look at some of those verses today. But first, screenshots from my Blue Letter Bible app about these words. For justice, we have this one. I know, I love it. And uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Yeah, well, I think it's mishpat, but I don't, I don't know, because I haven't taken Hebrew yet. But this has the idea of the actual judgment, the actual justice being done, the actual law, law or ordinance. You know, it also can mean the, the court or the seat of judgment. It's, uh, it is the decision. It's the privilege or the right to do someone. It is the fitting measure. This is the justice part of justice. When I decide I've done justice, you know, it's kind of a business act. You know what I mean? But it's coupled with this other word that's very interesting. Here I go again. Somebody's going to listen to this and know this Hebrew and just cringe, but I'm trying it, darn it. I think it's tzedakah or tzedek. I'm not sure. But this is more conceptual. This is righteousness in government or righteousness of a judge or righteousness of a law or righteousness of the Davidic king. Righteousness of just about everything. And it leaves you wondering, okay, great, it's a concept of righteousness, but I still have no idea what it means. Right? Luckily, there's so much in the Bible about this concept, we can see very clearly what it means. Even if you can't see the slide very clearly, because that's, it's kind of small font. Moving on. This is Tozer again. Justice, when used of God, is the name we give to the way God is. Nothing more. And when God acts justly, he is not doing so to conform to an independent criteria. That means that God never has to check the law book to see if he's about to make a just decision. He's just never unjust. His very character cannot be anything but just. He's simply acting like himself in a given situation. You guys want to see what this justice looks like? We're going to refer to this concept of justice and righteousness just as justice moving forward because that's the way the Bible does it sometimes and honestly that fits on a slide better than just writing justice and righteousness every time. You ready? Here we go. This is what it looks like in the life of Job. Job was not a priest or a king. He was just a really wealthy guy that was really wise and wanted to please the Lord in his life. Alright, so this is basically random guy. He's not an elected official. He has no special standing. When he's defending his life, when he's defending his behavior, this is what he says in Job 29, 11-17. When the ear heard it, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved. Why, Job? Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to die, about to perish, came upon me. I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. There's those two words. Look what he's talking about. It's amazing stuff. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. And I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. This shows that he was very active 
and addressing the needs and pressing concerns of others, even at the cost of his own resources and time. That's justice? Is that what you thought when we started? Doesn't sound like Ghostbusters 2. Let's move on. Let's look at what the king was supposed to do. Psalm 72 is a psalm. It's a song, a poem about how God expected his king to act. Now we know what he expected from Abraham, right? Keep my way by doing justice and righteousness. Absolutely shocking. No one, he expects the same thing from the king. Let's look at what that looks like. Give the king your justice, O God, and may your righteousness to, and, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Look at those words together. They're so buddies. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. Why? Because he's the biggest dog on the porch? Because he beats him into submission? No, look at this. For he, the king, delivers the needy when he calls, delivers the poor and him who has no helper. He, the king, has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Does this sound almost exactly the same as what Job said he was doing? Amazing. It, I mean, and Abraham already had a concept of what this was, and that's why God says to him, hey, this justice and righteousness thing, I want you to get it. You got it? Good. Now I'm going to destroy a bunch of righteous people for fun. And Abraham's like, oh, hold on, time out. You just said, you get in the picture of what God was doing with Abraham? But there's even more. It's not just Abraham. It's not just some wealthy guy. It's not just the king. But God himself loves this concept of justice and righteousness. And the prophet Jeremiah talks about it. And Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Well, what does he understand about you, God? That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love. That's next week. Justice and righteousness in the earth. Catch this. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Whoa, he really enjoys it. We're going to get to judgment at the end. I said that, right? I'm not hiding that fact. I never really mentioned hell, but we're going to talk about judgment. But I can tell you in Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel 18 and 30, maybe it's reaffirmed somewhere in the mid-30s, 32 or 33, that God basically says, hey, I don't enjoy judging wicked people. I don't even like it. I do it because I'm just, but you know what I really like? I like it when wicked people repent and stop being wicked people. It's 18, I believe. God delights in righteousness and justice. But there's a flag on the play. Because God doesn't define exactly what he means by that in his personal life in this passage. Not to fear. He does in Exodus. They're writing a bunch of laws in Exodus at this point, And they all have penalties. God's saying, if somebody does this, they deserve this. If somebody does this, they deserve this. But then we move on to some things that have no assigned penalty. Because God cares about it so deeply, he's going to take care of business himself. Listen to this, Exodus 22, 21 to 27. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. 
You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you. Wow. With the sword, your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Kind of kind of went from compassionate to severe there pretty quick, didn't it? He goes on. If you lend money to any of my people with, with of whom is excuse me, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Wow, that's telling. Realize how heavy and how many emotions we hit in that one little passage? Like, I care about these widows and the fatherless, and you better too, or I swear I'm going to kill you. And I'm going to hear those people because I'm compassionate. Now, we hear something like that and we think, well, is there a little bit of conflict there? A little bit of conflict in God? Is that possible? Let's address that in a minute. But first, I want to ask something. Are we really talking about justice? Seriously? I mean, all this nice stuff, look at this, delivering the poor, that's in every single passage. We're talking about helping the fatherless and helping orphans. This isn't what I think about with justice. Showing kindness to widows. We're treating sojourners honorably. We're lending money at 0% interest, really? And then a slew of other things. We're assisting the disabled. Remember Job said he was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame? Really? That's justice? Fathering people that need it? Fighting oppressors? And honestly, really, compassion? God says, I do this and I act this way because I'm compassionate? And this is under the heading of justice? Which one are we talking about? Compassion or justice? I mean, isn't God's mercy and compassion at odds with his justice? Certainly God's just, you know, just in anguish all the time trying to decide which part of his character to act out of, right? And no, that's not true. Tozer says it like this. God's being is unitary. It's one. He's not love and justice and compassion and mercy. You know what? He's just God. God's being is unitary. It is not composed of a number of parts working harmoniously. It's not like a car, but simply one. There is nothing in his justice which forbids the exercise of his mercy. God is never, never at cross purposes with himself. Never. No attribute of God is in conflict with another. God's compassion flows out of his goodness. And goodness without justice is not goodness. God spares us because he is good, but he could not be good if he was not just. There's no conflict. And you know what? We're amen, and that's great. When I read this, I was amen. This really hit home for me uh, at the kitchen counter upstairs when I was talking to Justin a couple days ago. This really sank in. And I was just kind of awestruck. Like, whoa, I've been thinking about this wrong. God, you're not all these things together. You're just you. You're just you acting like you. Like Tozer said, justice is what we call God acting like God. He's just being himself. Right. But 
There's something in this quote that kind of bothers us. If you, if you paid attention, it kind of it piqued my interest, and it's this part right here. God spares us. God spares us because he's good, and he wouldn't be good if he wasn't just. Why does God spare us? We're going to get to the third part of our sermon right now. We talked about the fact that God simply is just. It's his character. It's unique to God. He is the standard. We talked about what the way of Yahweh is. This strangely compassionate, others-focused lifestyle of justice that didn't mean what we thought it meant. But now we have to talk about God's judgment. And this brings up the wicked. Remember in Abraham's story, he said, are you going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So I want to ask, first in that context and then in ours, who were the wicked? Let's look at the wicked in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. First, the wicked people were the Sodomites. And Sodom's wickedness was the exact opposite of God's justice. You know, this is an elaborate story. And I'll go ahead and I'll tell you the middle of the story. The two angels go down to Sodom. It's evening. And Abraham's family member, Lot, goes out to the two angels and says, Look, you guys cannot sleep in the open. You have to come to my house. And the angels say, no, 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 we're just going to sleep out here. And Lot basically forces them to go to his house. Because Lot knows the city he's in. The people of the city saw the angels go to Lot's house. They recognize they're strangers. And they form an angry mob. They go to Lot's house. And they are intent on raping them all night. It's gang rape. Does that sound disturbing? It should. This is why partly... Not all the way. Don't read that slide yet. I swear I'll pick back. I'll do it. We get hung up on that part, right? Because it's the most striking part of the story immediately. But these two angels rescue Lot and his family. Lot tries to, tries to reason with the men in the city and says, Don't do this. Don't do this wicked thing. These people are under the protection of my roof. And then the people in the city say, You know what? We're going to rape you worse than them. Send them out. And the angels save them by, like, blinding them. It's amazing if I'm getting my story right. <laughs> I should have the story right. I'm writing it up. So Lot knows their angels. He understands the wickedness of the city. Things are bad. So we read this, and sometimes we think, well, that's the sin of Sodom. It's just the sexual perversion and the homosexuality. And let's just be clear, the Bible never condones that. It is a sin. But the sin of Sodom is much deeper. It's multifaceted. Sodom had a lifestyle that was the opposite of God's justice. Look at this from Ezekiel 16, 49 to 50. Ezekiel says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty, they were proud, and did an abomination before me. So I removed them. Everything about them was contrary to the way of Yahweh, not just the glaring sexual stuff. Also, note the difference between the way Abraham treated the visitors that came to him and the way the Sodomites treated the visitors that came to them. You see the striking difference between someone who's living out of God's justice, the way of Yahweh, and the predatory injustice of the Sodomites. It is amazing. And they fit the definition of wicked. But wicked, that's a category of people, isn't it? Now, we all, we're tempted to put different people in that category. We'd almost all certainly put 
Hitler there, but it seems like past Hitler, we're just never sure who else to throw in that category. <laughs> you know, the answer is actually quite uncomfortable, and we all know the answer, and this is why when I thought of justice, I thought of the scene in Ghostbusters 2, and not Job helping an orphan. We're going to look at this. Here's a quote from Ravi Zacharias, I believe, who is the man. Ravi says that he remembers Malcolm Muggeridge once said, human depravity, that's the fallen evilness of man, is at once the most empirically verifiable fact and yet the most staunchly resisted fact by our intellectuals. He also says this is the one aspect of Christianity you can actually just look at and prove, right? There's something wrong with the world. Evil happens all over the place. People are crappy, crappy. You know, there's a terrible heavy metal band called Slipknot. And way back in early 2000s or late 90s, they had a song called People Equal Crap, and it wasn't crap in the song. <laughs> and you know, they're wrong because we're made in the image of God, but if their message is people really kind of stink, they're right. And we all know. We don't have to argue this point. The justice of God fills us with fear instead of hope because we know that we're wicked. Right? Orphans looked at Job and had hope. We look at God and we're kind of afraid because we know what category we fit into. Are we wicked or are we righteous? We know instinctively. And even the ancient people, even Israel's neighbors, knew better than to blame the gods for injustice and evil. So if they knew better than to do that, can we please stop doing that? Let's not blame God for evil. Let's just not do that. In fact, let's look at the first five occurrences of the word evil in the Bible really quick. This will take less than two minutes. Here we go. First five uses of the word evil. Genesis 2.9, God makes the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2.17, God says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 3.5, Satan says, guys, you should totally eat of the tree and be like God's knowing good and evil. Genesis 4, Genesis 3.22, God says, well, this is pretty terrible. You ate of the tree and now know good and evil. Obviously, this is a paraphrase for rhetorical purposes, but here is the amazing fifth occurrence of the word evil. It's in Genesis 6, 5, and 6. The Lord looks down and he sees that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was what are those two words? Only evil, continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So here's my question. Where did the good go? Was it the tree of insidious, cancerous, all-consuming evil? No, or else God wouldn't have made it. You know, that was good too. Nothing wrong with the tree. You know, God puts man in his garden and says, you can raid the fridge, just don't eat this. It was a good tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They ate it. Man fell. Our nature turned. We're bad. We tend towards it. Sin, death, and condemnation swept in the door when they sinned and spread to all people. And we are all both guilty and wicked. And if you want this laid out in the Bible, go to Romans 5. They sinned. It came in like a hurricane. The world fell. Things are bad. 
things are bad. We don't want to resist what we already know deep down to be true. We are bad. We're not good. We deserve judgment. This is important. Both our Christianity and our understanding of God's justice must start here. Has to. You have to start at this place. I deserve judgment. I'm not good. I'm bad. I'm fallen. I'm guilty. And I'm justly condemned. Meanwhile, back at Sodom. <laughs> the story continues. I thought about meanwhile back at the farm. I needed to break the tension there. I felt like it was going to be intense. Let's keep that intensity, though. You know when you read the Bible, who's it staring at? Your neighbor or, your, you know, the president? It's like, when you read the Bible, it's always staring right at you, right? So let's, let's let this last part of the message stare right at us. It's staring at me. After the whole thing happens in Sodom with Lot, Abraham's family member, the angels tell him this. The men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were going to marry his daughters, and Lot says, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. They think he's kidding. Everybody knows what had just happened the night before, okay? This is not a mystery. So he goes and tries to save his future sons-in-laws. They're like, get out of here, you're crazy, you're just kidding around. Time elapses. As morning dawned, the angels urged, urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters. See, they're paring down now. He's like, we don't have time anymore to ask these people and have them refuse. Just grab your immediate family. Just grab your wife, grab your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Man, that slapped me in the face when I read it. This, was Lot not there when the angry mob came the night before, when they threatened to do worse to him than his visitors? Did he forget this? I mean, I can't imagine they slept at all after that. It's got to be pretty fresh in his mind. He just saw a miracle. He knows these are angels. He knows they're talking the truth. And he lingers. That's crazy. It's literally not sane. Do you realize that? But fallen people don't act sane, usually. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord. Abraham, the guy that God said, you are my chosen dude. I'm going to bless your socks off. Walk in justice and righteousness, my way of life. And Abraham says, I'm going to do that, but hey, I, I, want, to, I want to question your decision here. Is it really like you to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And God's answer is no. If I find ten people, I'll spare the city. My question now, after reading this, is <laughs> were there any righteous people in Sodom? Any. Let's include Lot. The one family Abraham must have been talking about didn't even want to leave their wicked city. Didn't want to leave the city that just tried to rape him, probably to death. That's also in the Bible, in another place. 
Didn't want to leave the place where his own family doesn't take him seriously. Didn't want to leave a place where you can't sleep in the town square without being taken advantage of. Didn't want to leave a place that was famous for being wicked, that God himself had to come down and destroy personally. He lingered. What is wrong with him? Let me ask this question to all of us, including me. We have these moments with the Lord. The salvation moment, I feel like, is a moment where God says, you can get up and leave the city or not. So many times we linger, don't we? I feel like the Lord has to grab us by the hand and drag us out. And I praise God that he did that to me. But are you righteous? Am I? It's a rhetorical question if, if you're not saved. And even if you are, so many times we hang on to that justification with white knuckles because we know us. But the more important question is will you leave your wickedness? Ready to get up and get out of that city? God is never at cross purposes with himself. Look at the definition of God's character. I squeeze in as much as I can, and we're squeezing it in right here at the conclusion today. When God defines what he's like, he says in Exodus 34, 6-7, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of generations, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Keeping in mind everything we just talked about, this is not different parts of God wrestling with different parts of God. This is God saying, this is what I'm like, and everybody needs to know it. So I'm going to submit to you that once you know this, so this is for everyone in this room, the deepest question is never, how can a loving God send people to hell? The question is, do you want to be guilty or not? Do you want to be guilty or not? We know who God is. We know how he operates. This isn't a secret. It's all over the Bible. Do you want to be guilty or not? Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And we talked about the fact that God's just. We talked about the way of Yahweh being this concept of justice and righteousness and that runs us headlong into judgment and we know we all deserve it. Here are three facts about God's judgment. It's both compassionate and severe. We saw that in Exodus. It is the unchanging standard by which all of us will be judged and it cannot be avoided. But it can be favorable. It can be favorable. I want to close with a couple quotes. I'm going to skip that one from Robbie. It's great, but I got a longer quote from Tozer I want to hit. Because of our sin, we are all under the sentence of death, a judgment that resulted when justice confronted our moral situation. But when the penitent sinner casts himself upon Christ for salvation, the moral situation is reversed. Justice confronts the changed situation and pronounces the believer and pronounces the believing man just. But God's justice stands forever against the sinner in utter severity. The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. And don't waste my time. Once you've heard this, once you know how God is, 
Don't even ask, how could a loving God act this way? How could a loving God send people to hell? That Bible is staring at you, not anybody else. And the question is, do you want to be guilty or not? So you have some decisions to make. There's two options. Here's option A. Believe that Jesus took your just punishment on the cross and serve him as Lord with a lifestyle that reflects this concept of justice and righteousness. That's option A. Option B, the only other option there is, is spit in God's face, reject the cross, live however you want, and bear the just wrath of God forever, for all time. But remember, the Bible says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the Bible also says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the choice is really yours. God's just. There's a standard he expects his people to live by. And his judgment is sure. Are you going to be in the category of the righteous or the wicked? And that depends on what you do with the cross. And you need to decide that today. Amen. Let's pray, guys.